You know what the most dangerous thing in America is, right? Nigga with a library card. <laughs> This is the Most Dangerous Thing in America podcast, a show in which we read books by black authors and they're talked about by a black author. And you can listen if you are black or not black. This week on the podcast, we are finishing up Fred Moten's In the Break, the making of the black radical tradition, excuse me, the aesthetics of the black radical tradition. So we did chapter one two weeks ago. We did chapter two one podcast ago it's being released the same time as this podcast but actually i recorded it last week and then today i'm recording chapter three and the coda that's at the end and i might do it in one podcast we'll see so if this thing goes too long i will stop and then record my thoughts on the coda at the end that's probably what's going to happen because i don't want to rush through this there's a lot to get to and then yeah, so then altogether there'll be four parts. So that first part was uh, the intro, kind of like a, not really an intro, more like a uh, prologue, and then a chapter one, and then a chapter two, which is called In the Break itself. It's actually the part of chapter two is called In the Break. And then part three, which we're doing today, which is called Visible Music, and it will be part of its own podcast, which we're doing right now, right this moment. We are about to go do this podcast right here, right now. And then um, the coda will be a separate podcast after that. So yeah, that's that's what we're doing. Okay, so with that being said, let's get to it. Okay, so before we get started with part three, a couple of notes and some cleanup. So let's do the cleanup and actually the notes we will save for the coda podcast. Yeah, we'll save the notes for the coda podcast. That's a good idea. So the cleanup would be just maybe a little bit better definition of invagination which gets mentioned a lot here and I think I said maybe that it was coined by Derrida but it actually was not coined by Derrida but basically invagination means it is a meta-narrative that folds in on itself and the way it's being used in this text in particular is the idea of the outside and the inside being inseparable and like indistinguishable in a work of art so that for instance you have something that is commenting on itself or critiquing itself but it's doing it from the well I mean the fact that it's critiquing itself it's doing it within the mode of a modernist critique of modernist art you know it's not the logic or the criteria that it's using are inherent to the thing that it's critiquing so that's kind of the way that Moten is using it, although he's using it in a bunch of different ways. That is not what invagination necessarily means, just talking about the way it's being discussed in this text. And then so the second thing would be when I was talking about in chapter two, when they were talking about the 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 last section of chapter chapter two where he was talking about the underground, he has a good footnote in chapter three, and in general the footnotes improve in chapter three, that kind of clarifies what he was trying to say. And he specifically was trying to say that the black underground is a sexual underground. And he was using Samuel Delaney, uh, who's a science fiction writer, and Amari Baraka as examples of how that happened, how it unfolded, how it was told. And also the five spot. You remember that section was called Round the Five Spot. So maybe that clarifies a little bit better about what that section was about. 
hopefully. And then this is not cleanup, but this is just kind of what is going to be happening here in this third section. I just kind of want to give an overview about it. So if the first section was about kind of that originary unit and the, what did, what did he say specifically? The, the moment before every prenatal event. Okay. If that's what the first section is about. And if the second section is more about sound and specifically the limitations of language and how sound and voice are separate from language and all of that stuff. Okay, so that's its own thing. The third section does less of both in terms of defining what something isn't and then naming it and then pointing it out. That is to say that the first two sections really concentrate on actually naming the aesthetic that's going after. That first section talks about this this prenatal moment, if you will. The second section talks about the actual voice and the actual uh, instrument of the aesthetic, right? This voice and how it does more than what mere words or language could do. The third section is not really doing that. The third section is more focused on bringing up a scholar, a critic, etc., and kind of investigating their work and pointing out what they missed, right? And so the name of the section is Visible Music. The name of the chapter is Visible Music. And I think a lot of what goes on here is focusing on critics who have read or seen black art and have missed out on some essential aesthetic of black art because they were not attuned to the aesthetic that has been pervasive in black art forever. That's what I think the point of this section is. And so I'm going to try to go through these relatively quickly because be, because the section discusses so many different critics, there is a ton of reading to get through. And let's just talk about the different critics that are talked about. We have Lee Edelman. We have Jacques Lacan. We have, of course, Derrida. We have Roland Barthes. Uh, Roland Barth. Barth. We have Roland Barth. We have, um, oh my goodness, uh, James Baldwin. We have Adrian Piper, we have Amiri Baraka, Angela Davis. And when I'm naming these people, I'm not saying like he mentions them and moves on. I'm saying like you gotta like, oh, Marx. Oh, we're not done yet. Hold on. Marx. Um, there's another one. There's another, There's like several more. Uh, Spivak, I don't remember the first name. Frederick Jameson, uh, Silverman, I don't remember the first name. And um, Mackey again, Nathaniel Mackey again. And, and, and again... These are not like, oh, here, I just named them. Move, move on with your life. It's like, here, I named them. Go look them up. Like, figure out what they're writing about in order to figure out what I'm writing about and then come back to the work. It's really not an accessible section. So I'm going to try to just give broad overviews of what's happening here. And um, I went down some of those sideways. I, Edelman, in particular, I actually read the essay that... Uh, Moten references. Well, I read most of the essay. It was, it was pretty long, but I read it up to the point where Moten um, stops referencing it, and then I was good because I needed to know like how did he just he he put the reference into the the section, and I was like, okay, I don't know what's going on. So I needed to read up to that point to get the foundation of it. But so anyway, the point is, there's a lot of referential material in here. 
and um, you really have to engage with it to understand what's happening. So uh, I will try to do my best to skirt around it because um, otherwise it would be ridiculous. You know, it'd be a three-hour podcast, and at that point, just read the book. Okay. So and and if you are reading the book, then you already know half the stuff anyway. And so, like again, what's the point of me mentioning every single little thing? So let's just talk about the main points then. Okay. So the third chapter is called Visible Music. The first section of said chapter is called Baldwin's Baraka, his mirror stage, and the sound of his gaze. And we're not going to get into what all of those terms mean. The mirror stage is a Jacques Lacan thing. Baraka, I can't remember which person coined that. It may have been Lacan as well. And then the sound of his gaze. Okay, so what's essential here is that... Moten is trying to get into the idea that there is a phonic substance that is ignored. So some of these words are his words and some of these words are blowing mine. There's a phonic substance that is ignored by both Lacan and Edelman. All right. And he quotes both of them at length and goes through basically how they've misread Baldwin. So when I say it's ignored, it's ignored in the works of Baldwin by Edelman and then ignored in the idea of the black self-consciousness by Lacan because Lacan is the person who came up with the idea of mere stage and basically the occlusion of phonic substance has also excluded black people because part of the black experience is tied into this this phonic idea okay that's the basic premise all right but i want to go back to edelman just for a second and and, uh, talk about exactly what edelman was writing because so he the way we come into edelman in the moten pieces he's quoted at length talking about baldwin and then and then moten says like here's what he missed but here's what he gives us because he does like some of what edelman gave us so the the essential thing we need to know is that Edelman was basically talking about how, and he uses Fanon and Baldwin to accomplish this, but basically talking about how the black man exists in society as part of the whole of society, W-H-O-L-E. He is a part of the society, part of the whole. How is he a part of the whole? He's part of the whole as being a subject of the white gaze that views him as lacking something, right? The something that he's lacking, at least historically, has been the phallus, right? You didn't have the, and we're going to be crude about it, the big dick power. It was taken from him, the African-American male or the colonized black male. It was taken from him, this this big dick power. And so his only, the, the only, the only role a black man has is to see himself through the white gaze, which sees him only as a part of the whole, W-H-O-L-E, as it pertains to him being part of, the whole h-o-l-e little play on words there and all of this gets to the idea of castration the black man exists as a as a subject that is gazed at by the white man as being something that is lacking and because he's lacking he by that lacking that is the only way in which he can fit into the w-h-o-l-e whole he's a whole of the whole and then this gets into the idea of castration the idea of like I said big dick power it's not the term that they use in the book but that's the term I'm using here and how black men then become obsessed with the idea of chasing after the big dick power 
that the white man has, and that is why civil rights movements have been male-centered, at least ideologically or in the minds of males, not that women haven't participated in civil rights movements, but that the language around them has always been masculine because they are driven by black males' lust for big dick power, more or less. I'm simplifying, but that's more or less what's going on. All of this to get to the idea, at least in Edelman, about the idea of... um, So this eventually shifts in Edelman to get to the idea of uh, how black masculinity is also homophobic. And then he has a little critique of uh, black masculinity being homophobic because some scholars have suggested that homophobia has been transported from outside to the inside of black culture by the colonizers, but then some other more black nationalist thinkers and ones who are obviously regressive have argued that homosexuality in general is is an outside disease thrusted upon the black man. Uh, and keep in mind that I neither think that it's a disease nor that it was thrust on black people. But th- this is um, this is Edelman critiquing these people. And so and so the whole point of this is that it, he's trying to say that uh, all of this all of this um, is the is how black gay masculinity gets defined as something lesser than because he starts out the essay talking about how baldwin was known in some circles as martin luther queen and about what that means exactly edelman's whole point in the book it's a it's a gay theory and critical theory or gay literature theory gay critical literary theory it's quite a bit of theories but his whole point is about how the gay body is like a social text how writing is like the the act of writing is the act of defining the homosexual through text and the name of the essay is homographesis and uh that is where we're going to stop there's the this so that project is built on somebody else's project and then moton is seeking to build his project on the back of edelman's project by critiquing homographesis and tweaking homo graphesis okay and i might be mispronouncing graphesis but but basically that's where we're at so he goes in and he goes through edelman and uh lacan like i said and he critiques edelman for missing out on the sound thing and then he critiques lacan for also missing out on the sound thing but uh his his rebuttal of lacan has more to do with um the mirror image and uh he gets into the idea of whether or not uh black people even have a mirror image since their entire existence in the culture is based off of the white gaze and being a whole of the whole which gets into the whole castration theme again uh the idea that you are that you are defined by a lack so you can see that that's quite a bit let's see if we can have moton in his own words and if it will make sense He says here, I want to think about the way that writing's description of sound is also a description of sound, as in taking sound away, a writing out of sound that corresponds both with the unconscious denial that the maternal body is inscribed with the mark of castration, that is, the precondition at the level of the subject for the philosophical exclusion or suppression of the maternal, the body, and the signifying mark. So... This is the link between his project and Edelman's project. As he says just a little bit later, just a little bit earlier, he says um, Edelman's project is about taking that maternal mark that we were just speaking of 
and to the inscription of the homosexual within a tropology that produces him in a determining relation to inscription itself. So now he's going to seek to do the same thing, but with sound, and that sound is going to explain the, the black aesthetic in general. It's not a very coherent transfer. So, like, Edelman's project, while hard to necessarily wrap one's head around is more or less i think straightforward and i didn't have too much trouble with it when i was reading it i didn't get to the end so i didn't get to his conclusion i got to the part where he quotes baldwin's last novel and that was the part that uh moten had quoted so that's all that i needed to understand what edelman was talking about and i did moten goes through and he and he seeks to go ahead and you know extend edelman's idea and, and again, here here he is again saying what it will take to extend this idea. Okay, now when I say so, I'm not I don't think I'm being rude here when I say that the idea is a little bit unclear. This requires that I establish an equivalence between the denial of writing or inscription, which is also a denial of castration, and the denial of the oral in writing, an orality that augments and redoubles castration, destabilizing its determinations of meaning, disavowal, fetishization, alienation. Note again, this would be not a denial of castration, but an imaginative cut or a sexual cut of castration by way of orality. And it goes on for some more time. I don't think that he did these things. It says it requires that he would do these things, and I don't think that he did them. But you can read for yourself and see if he does. Just know that's what this section is about, okay? I think we've done enough to at least establish what the section is about. Let's move on to section two, which is entitled... Or which is titled, excuse me. It's not entitled whatsoever. It knows its place. Uh, it's titled Black Monin and the Sound of the Photograph. And so here we discuss, again, just hitting the broad strokes, Emmett Till and his mother's decision to show his photograph and what this means as it relates to Aunt Hester and black performance. And specifically, um, he says... What those aesthetics might have meant for Mamie Bradley in the context of so Mamie Bradley was in the tells mother in the context of her demand that her son's face be seen, be shown that his death and her mourning be performed. And I thought that was an important quote to include because it says her mourning was performed, but it was about why was her mourning performed? Obviously, it was for a purpose and uh, it was necessary. But all of that did get me thinking into how because you know at the beginning of this thing he was talking about how she chose to take out Anne Hester's part in what she was writing because she was tired of this uh repetitive black performance re repetitive black pain and here we see the importance of it we had had repetitive black pain although at that moment in time maybe it wasn't as visual but there were photographs but now um we're at a point where we're getting we're inundated with videos of police killings and, and what have you to the point where I don't want to watch them ever again and I don't f I don't feel like I need to and it's a question to be asked if that if those videos have become like Aunt Hester in the beginning of this book because it's interesting I mean it's interesting if you just pull out each moment in time and ask yourself like all right was the black performance good bad or otherwise at that moment in time at this moment in time 
it was obviously necessary what Emmett Till, what that photo did, sparked something. Now, whether or not it was the beginning of it, and Moten gets into that in his in the section here, whether or not it was the beginning is besides the point. It definitely kicked something else off. So, yeah, anyway, there's certainly value in black performance. There's also tragedy in the constant repetition of black performance, but that kind of gets back into Moten was talking about. And that's interesting. That is interesting. Uh, something to think about. Okay, but that's not all that he's talking about here. Again, he's really focused on sound. So what he does here is he goes through and talks about the sound of the photograph quite poetically. Uh, I think pretty unconvincingly, but at least that's what he's talking about. The sound of the photograph. And this is where Roland Barthes comes in and he talks about... So, you know, in each one of these sections, he's talking about how somebody misread something. With Barthes, he's talking about how... He's not attuned to listen to photographs. And he says, and he quotes Barth. He quotes Barth talking about how photographs lack certain things. Like they take a picture. I think the specific passage talks about births and deaths. Takes a picture of a birth. Doesn't show you how long the, the woman was in labor for. Takes a picture of death. Doesn't show you if the person died peacefully in their sleep. Or if they uh, if they were hit by a bus. I mean, it, obviously it could if it was taken at the moment that the bus hit them. But if they're laying in a casket, for instance, it doesn't show you. So then Moten goes through and he talks about how Barthes is, uh, you know, he's uh, ill-equipped to talk about photographs and sound and not attuned to it. And um, then he quotes, uh, or excuse me, then he says, and perhaps whatever speech and writing that comes after or over a photograph or a performance should deal with this epistemological and methodological problem, how to listen to and touch, and taste, and smell a photograph, or a performance, how to attune oneself to a moan or shout. So there you go. That's exactly what he's talking about. Throughout these, throughout this visible music chapter, it's people not being attuned to it. They're not attuned to the aesthetic. That's the whole point of this chapter, in my mind. Now, like I said, there's a lot of different ways it ventures out, and, and a lot of different byroads and stuff. At the end of this section, he goes with, he talks about the famous Rodney King essay, can you be black and look at this, reading the Rodney King videos? So this goes back into the idea of what I was just talking about, about the constant, constant, constant influx of these images, which Moten also talks about, but he wrote this book in 2005. I, I really would be curious to see what Moten would think at this point in 2021. But that, that essay was written by Elizabeth Alexander right in, what, 1994? And they interviewed her. Again, I was looking for the uh, essay online and couldn't find it, but they interviewed her in the New York Times in June 22nd, 2020 about her essay. So as much as I've like not enjoyed necessarily the reading process of this book, there is something to be said about the point it's making when this, let's use refrain, is repeated over and over again. You have Rodney King in 1994 and then turn of the 2000s you have plenty of different incidents and then obviously george floyd and but between 2010 and from from um i can't even remember the names of all the victims so i'm not even going to do all of that but like just choose your victims the 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 amount of, of victims that we've seen in the last five years two years one year and you know, women who are writing essays like "Can You Be Black and Look at This" in 1994, who she could have wrote the, Elizabeth Alexander could have written that essay in 1995, 96, 
June 1996, July 1996, could have written it, could have written it again in August 1996. You know, that that just over and over and over and over and over again. That's an interesting idea as well, and something that Moten is kind of also hinting at in the work. But that's not the center of the work. The center of the work, the centerpiece of this work, and specifically this section, is about sound, missing sound, and people missing sounds in things that they are watching or seeing. Because uh, he also talks about the idea that when you look at something visual, you know, for instance, if you're at a live performance, that de-emphasizes the sound, right? If you're watching a drummer drum, it de-emphasizes the sound. But if you're listening to a recording of that drummer drum, that de-emphasizes the visual. So there's something that sound adds to visual, right? That's why it comes up with the visible music. And then he uses that idea to talk about already. We've talked about Baldwin and writing, and then we're talking about photos. And now we get into a movie in the third section which is called tonality of totality in this section so the first section was lacan and edelman second section was barth's the third section deals with frederick jameson who is a literary critic and he was talking about a need for a new aesthetic and so how does moton attack him or critique him let's not say attack they're all scholars how does he critique him he does it by pointing out that in this protest film, basically, finally got the news, which was a, a protest film made by a union of black workers in Detroit. Frederick Jameson basically dismisses that work as not achieving the aesthetic that he hopes to see, but it kind of hinted at that aesthetic. And then Moten goes through this whole process of pointing out how Jameson missed it. He missed the aesthetic. It was there the whole time. And he he critiques he, he critiques um, uh, uh, Jameson's ideas. And he says, if we linger in the cut, because remember the cut, the break, that's where all of this stuff is taking place. If we linger in the cut, if the film is image and spectacle, it is also sound and music. This means it is not merely, ultimately, to use Jameson's quote, an example that may serve to illustrate it is also the counterexample, counter even to the very logic of exempl exemplarity that serves to sing where the uh, musicality of film form is the material imaging of victory, etc. So he goes on for a while, but basically his point in this section is this film is the missing aesthetic that Jameson wants and the black aesthetic, once again, if we can use this as a theme, is often being excluded in these literary theories because people are not recognizing that this aesthetic is either uh, already achieving what they are asking for it to achieve or that it's achieving more than they are drawing out of it or that they're not even aware of their uh, they're not even aware that they lack the ability to draw everything out of it that could be drawn out of it uh, and then he goes into a discussion of Marvin Gaye and um how Marvin Gaye is really the uh, Marvin Gaye in defining the sound of Motown, how that really shows the black aesthetic. And he writes, uh, and this is really actually the whole point here. So this is an extended passage. I'm not going to read all of it, but I'll read a little bit of it. Thus the intersection of rhythms and the allegories they carry, thus the doubleness of Gaye iconized in the rhythm arrest that is not an arrest. Uh, and then, just skip over little parts here. This expression of desire is where the aesthetics of cognitive mapping that Jameson imagines but can't describe is located. Remember, Jameson's desire for the aesthetic is prompted by his so-called uh, by 
by a couple of so-called failures localized in Detroit. One is supposed failure of the League of Revolutionary Black Workers, that's the, that's the group that made that um, that film, to adequately position themselves in the space of postmodern global capital. The other is what Kevin Lynch describes as a failure of arrangement and rearrangement of the Detroit space that leads to a general inability to form a cognitive map of that city. Um, but anyway, the point is, is that that cognitive map is there. It's there in the cut in Gay's music. It's there in the cut of that film finally got the news. So that's where it is. And this guy, Jameson, missed it, missed it. So that's the point there. And then he concludes this third section with how basically he misses this aesthetic. So I got two funny observations here and then I'm going to be done. But basically he says, um, this old, this old aesthetic is is either gone or missing. He says, again, you might call it something about a revolutionary tone recently deamplified, along with a certain revolutionary rhetoric in black political discourse. Not that preacherly thing that persists like a degraded aural shadow of King, like Winton to Clifford or Miles. I just like this because he's dunking on Winton Marsalis. And then he goes into talking about Angela Davis and how her voice was like, what got him into everything, but he admits that um, Angela Davis would not like the way he's discussing her because she herself feels like she's been made into an image of the revolution and that like de-emphasizes all the other people who are working in the revolution. So it's a pretty weird meta discussion of like, I like this thing, but I know I shouldn't like this thing. Not thing, I like this person, but thing, because that's what he's turned it into thingness. I know what I'm... So it made me wonder like, you know, how much of this is just a certain tone that Moten likes, how much of it is uh, actually, like, super necessary and vital to the black radical tradition or the aesthetic, and how much of it is just accidental. Um, but I guess that was always the question, you know, that was always the question. Uh, the other thing I thought about this from this section was just the... The, the Detroit thing, man. The Detroit thing is just crazy. When you really think about Detroit, Michigan in general. But so I, I just made a quick note as I was reading about Detroit again. Where did I put it? I wrote down just five things. You know, like you got uh, Roger and Me, right? That movie about, um, what's my man's name? The documentary director, Michael Moore. And then I know that's not in Detroit, but still it's in Michigan. It's about factories closing, etc. And then the Flint water crisis. Uh, you have this black workers thing here. You have the blue collar movie with Richard Pryor in it about factory workers and then uh, unionizing. You've got uh, Jill Scott Heron. Uh, we almost lost Detroit, which is one of the all time great poems that, you know, has been performed. And, and that poem does not beg the question, because that's not how that term's used, but it does make you wonder, how many times have we lost Detroit? You know, we almost lost Detroit. How many times have we lost it? It feels like we just keep perpetually losing Detroit forever and ever into infinity. And that gets us back into that idea of the black performance and repetition. And that gets us back into the idea of uh, cyclical black pain that we were talking about with Emmett Till and Rodney King and George Floyd. So... That's depressing, but necessary uh, to at least think about. But yeah, so then that's pretty much the end of the third section. Ends with 
more or less Moten's lament that this revolutionary tone has gone out. But yeah, I would say in summarizing the third section, it's all about the idea that what is being excluded, what is being occluded, is this this black aesthetic, which which is a phonic substance, which is basically either being excluded for reasons of the person doesn't know that it's there, the person doesn't realize its value, or the person can't even begin to understand what it is. And yeah, that's a that you know I I don't disagree with those general notions. The way that they're argued is not like the clearest, but the general notion is interesting. So yeah, I thought that was good. And then and then ending it with this idea of that revolutionary radical aesthetic being deamplified. I feel that. I think that's true, but I think it's back. I you know, from the 2005 until like through the Obama era, I thought that was true, but I think post Obama it's back. I didn't think that radical aesthetic existed in the Obama era. And uh I think since Black Lives Black Lives Matters has started, it's kind of back, and I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that like basically it I think some some a lot most probably black people thought when Obama got into office like things would change, and they didn't. And that got everybody back to the idea of like, oh right, like there's a tradition here that has nothing to do with the the um the establishment. Like we've been moving without the establishment for a long time. We don't need to move through the establishment. Not that we can't also like accomplish things within the within the establishment, but the organization starts outside of that. So whatever. And I mean that depends on your politics more than anything. You know, if you really are a radical then maybe you don't want to anything to be accomplished inside the establishment that's fine that's a different conversation but i just mean in general people thinking like all right we're going to get it started ourselves here not waiting for anybody else to do it for us that's helped bring back a little bit of that aesthetic so not that it was ever completely gone you know i don't think it was ever completely gone at all but deamplified is a good word for moton i'm going to call it there and then I'm recording the, the, the last part of this on the same day, so I'm just going to be right back recording here, and I'll give more general thoughts and go longer and just like what I think about. I'll, I'll do the coda, so there's one more piece to talk about, which I'll talk about very briefly, and then I'll give my general thoughts, but uh, if, you're, if you're not going to listen for a while, then I'll still do the sign-off here, which is to say, until next time, stay safe, stay black, and keep reading.